Hi, this is Jeff Dixon, and I'm the pastor of Word of Life here in Miami, Oklahoma, and this is our podcast. I'm so glad you've chosen today to tune in to hear what God is speaking to us in the northeastern part of Oklahoma, and I hope it speaks to you as well. Enjoy. Have you ever been in a new job or a new scenario, a new place where you didn't know what you could do, therefore you did nothing and you felt more in bondage in that scenario than free to do? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? I can remember many, many years ago, as I think it was about 1999 when we went to Africa, wasn't that the year? And I, I remember getting off the plane in a culture that was not my own, in a world that spoke not my language, and I remember that the idea was we were going to go to this house of the, the people that were hosting us, which wound up being a wonderful place to live for the week and a half that I was there. Vanessa did not get such privileges, um, but we won't talk about that today because she's still a little bitter and she needs to let that go and repent. But uh, anyway, I remember we walked into this house. Everybody sat down and they said, we're going to do some orientation and let you know some do's and don'ts of Africa, things you can say some places and some ways to be safe and secure. And just about the time they started doing that, somebody came in and got me and said, oh, Jeff, you're going to go with us. And I didn't get my do's and don'ts. And the people took me to this slum area of Nairobi, Kenya, and introduced me to Martin. Jeff, he would say. And said, Jeff, Martin, and Martin looked at me, I looked at Martin, and he knew, he spoke English, praise the Lord, but he didn't know what to say to me, I didn't know what to say to him, he couldn't relate to me, I couldn't relate to him, and they said, y'all have fun, and left me with this guy that was as scared of me as I was of him. Can you imagine? And the next thing I know, Martin is taking me through the streets of the slum area of Nairobi, Kenya, white, hairy dude. I had hair on my head at this time, but white, hairy guy. Now, this is something that is pretty um, amazing to those Nairobians. And they would run up, especially the kids, and they would pull my flipping arm hair and be so excited about it. But as I'm walking down the streets, I'm literally stepping over sewage drainage. Drunk men laying on the ground, passed out, scared out of my mind, afraid to do anything because I didn't know the boundaries in which I could do them. I later found out that they have a type of police there that if they catch you doing anything wrong within a certain scope, their job is not to arrest you and take you to jail. They execute you on the spot. They are judge, jury, and executioner. Glad I didn't know that in that moment. However, I didn't intend to do anything wrong, but I didn't know what was right or wrong. They took me to this little house, probably no larger than the area of chairs there in the middle of the room combined. That was kitchen, living room, bedroom, bathroom, everything. And there was probably 20 or 30 Nairobians sitting in there having the craziest, most incredible encounter with God they'd ever had. Well, I'd ever seen. Children, adults, loving Jesus. But I didn't know what to do. Because I didn't have any restrictions upon me. 
I wasn't free because I didn't know what I could do. In the house right next to him, they were carrying on all the same. Later, I found out they were having a wedding, and they were Muslim. And that scared the snot out of me, too. And we are sitting here, and I'm the white American that is full of resource and wisdom. Oh, mind you, I'm probably, let's see, 99. It's 2000. Makes me 18 years old. A lull comes into the praise, the exuberance, exuberant expression of their love and devotion to their God. Martin. Now, please don't be offended in this room today, but Martin was the darkest African I've ever seen. With his beautiful white teeth and his white eyes, he looked at me. And he said, Jif, tell us about Jesus. I'm sorry, my accent is terrible. I'm just a white American. Didn't know I was speaking. Didn't know what I could talk about. Couldn't relate to the culture. I had no boundaries operated. I was not free in that moment. I was in bondage. There was no freedom. Interesting place to be, isn't it? Now, by the grace of God, instantly I opened up to the only book in which I'd ever really read at an 18-year-old boy's life who had grown up in church but had faked his religion up to that point, really. Been saved all my life. I loved Jesus the best I knew how. But it wasn't until many years later that I began to discover how to do it, what it is that I do every week. I opened to the book of Romans and I talked about something I don't even remember. And I'm sure it was terrible. Hey, loved every second of it. And back down the streets, stepping over the floating turds. Seriously. The urine. Kids pulling my arm hair. All excited. And we went back to Martin's house. He began to prepare me a meal. The grisliest spaghetti I've ever had. Didn't know if I could eat it or not. Didn't know what my boundaries were. About the time he brings out the food and sets it before me, and I'm twirling the, no- over, the mushy noodles onto my fork with who knows what kind of meat and red sauce. The host shows up. It's actually Phil Stern's brother, by the way, is our host. John. He sits down and he looks at me and he says, eat it. He offered it. Later did I find out that was probably a week's worth of wages paid for that meal for me. This spaghetti that is our cheap meal, right? When you have no money, what do you make? Spaghetti, right? Sometimes with meat. And he brings out a drink and he sets it down. And John and Martin have this discussion back and forth in Swahili. Martin looks at me, looks at John, looks back at me, grabs that drink, and walks back to the kitchen. Apparently, I'm not supposed to drink whatever it is he brought out to me, but I didn't know. I had no restrictions. I was in bondage at that moment. Isn't it interesting that restrictions are freeing? Laws are empowering, and I'm going to talk about that somewhat today in the best way I can, with very little development once I get to that point. But before I get there, I want to start, if I can, in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And initially, you'll probably wonder, why on earth is 
be talking about this. This has nothing to do with his introduction. But if you'll follow me on this journey, I'll eventually get to where I'm going. And it says this in verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus, another man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to stop right there and get you a picture going on. This looks like a lot of us if you uh, want to be honest with yourself, and you come into church, and you kneel down before the good teacher, and we come to this place seeking some form of uh, identity, some form of redemption, some reason to encounter God for the betterment of our own lives. Do you think that we encounter this scenario where we come into church and we bow before him and say, good teacher, what must I do? Where must I go? How must I do it? And Jesus says to him in verse 18, You call me good, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. We walk in before the presence of God and we kneel down and we say, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says some things and we think, well, I've been good. I mean, I've never gone to jail. Maybe some of us have, but we're living a better life. I don't know, but I've, I've never done this. I'm doing my best on my own to be someone worthy to call you good. I've done this the best way I know how, and that may relate to many of us in this room, but Jesus says to him, verse 21, actually he looked at him and he loved him, and I love that. Because when Jesus looks at me and he loves me, the next phrase that he is going to say is only for my betterment. It's not going to cause me to be in a worse situation. It's not going to be put me in a place of lack. It's not going to be putting me in a place that is going to cause me to uh, live a life less than his best for me. It's going to actually transition me because he loves me to a moment in which I will step into the very best life that he has for me. But he says something that really becomes a sad thing. And he says, you lack one thing. Wait, wait a minute. You lack one thing. I've done the things you told me to do. Now, God, why why would you do this to me? Why would you allow me to come before you? I kneel at your presence and I declare what I think you are in this moment. You look at me in love, but now you cut me down and you tell me I'm lacking something. He says this, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. It's my identity. This man was a wealthy man. He's not necessarily saying, get rid of your wealth. What he's saying is, give up your identity. Give up who you think you are so that I can tell you who I say you are. Go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. It's this great exchange of trade in who you think you are so I can give you who I say you are because who I say you are transcends the space and time in which you're sitting in now. It transcends a beginning and an end and it places you right smack dab in eternity for I am convinced as I am convinced that as I am standing here today, we are not sitting in a place of momentary beginning and end, but as we said yes to Jesus, 
Jesus, we transitioned into eternity. We are no longer living a life that says that I have to be sick, that I have to deal with what the world says, but I can say I deal with what God says and I become an eternal being living in the full benefits of what heaven says. And the reason I say that is when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray kingdom of God be done, will of God be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And the phrase there means it's now, not later. It's for me today, not tomorrow. It is a place in which I sit that says eternity dwells within me today. And when I said yes to Jesus, I no longer became a temporal being, but I stepped into the realm of eternal life. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. He sent his only son that whoever believes in him will have what? Eternal or everlasting life. That belief transitions us. So Jesus is looking at him and he might say, sell everything you have, give to the poor. Really what he's saying is trading what you think your identity is for what I say your identity is. Because your identity says I'm temporary. But my identity for you says you are eternal. What a powerful place. To live, And then he says something even more profound than this trade. Just follow me. It's like he's saying, are you willing to go to the ends of the earth? For the message in which I'm going to put upon you. Are you willing to take the message, the life, the gift, wherever it leads you? Are you willing to be led by my message? 22, sad. Disheartened by the saying, this man went away sorrowful, for he did have great possession. No, he didn't. He had jack squat. He had no revelation of who he was in the presence of. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to expound on that here in just a minute because there's nothing wrong with having some resource, which is fantastic. 24 says, and the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, for all things are possible with Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and we have followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now is the time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last be first. Let's pray again. Father, I thank you for your word in this place today. Lord, I pray as I begin to speak the revelations that you've given to me that they would be clear, they would be understood, they would be life transforming, and we would all walk out of here different than we walked in because of your word, because we begin to see who you say we are. We trade in one of the most unfair trade-ins ever. We trade in who we think we are for who you say we are who we think we are is a lie and who you say we are is the truth. Thank you for giving us truth in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.
So I'm going to jump into my observations. You're used to me sharing some scripture, sharing some insights, and going right in, and, and then kind of wrapping up with some observations. I'm going to put my observations in the middle today. Observation number one about following God. We must be willing to serve those who are less than we are. Think about this in the context of the ultimate trade-in of who we think we are versus who he thinks we are. We must be willing to serve those who are less than we think we are. In verse 21 in this chapter, in this passage of Scripture that we've read today, it says, And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said to him, Take, uh, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, but you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. You see, there are those that are around us always. I don't care where we walk. I don't care how much or how little we have. We're going to always be able to find somebody in our eyes that has less. We're going to always be able to find somebody who is less significant in our own eyes than we are. We're going to be able to find somebody that needs something. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean when you see the guy standing at the street corner with the help me sign that you have to every time give them a few dollars in your pocket. No, it's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is we've got to be willing to serve those. Serve those. You see, Jesus, the ultimate servant, said he came from heaven as God and established himself on this earth as man. And he didn't come to be served, but to serve. If anybody ever walked this earth as someone that we should serve, it was Jesus. And as he enters the room, there should have been people bowing at his feet every wet step of the way, lending their resource to him. They should have been making sure he didn't have to lift a finger for anything. But when he walked in the room, some things that he did is he washed their dirty, grimy feet. He served them. He came to serve. He made himself lesser than his real position so that you and I could have eternity with God. So that we can make this transition from eternal or from temporary to eternal. What a powerful place to be and we are called to do the same thing. And I can't help but think about the scripture that says the works and the things that Jesus did, we would do greater. And I love to preach things about how the miracles he did that we can do greater, but he died. We should do greater. He served, Alana. We should do greater. I wonder if we would transition ourselves to this place of service, how much more could he do through us? You see, it's not my job to tell you how to do that. However, I'll help. It's my job to serve. It's your job to serve. How does that look? I don't know. I'm trying to figure this out. Every day, I'm at his feet, I'm saying, good teacher. And he says, no, God's good. Sell everything you have. But God... Do it. But God, I have. No, you haven't. You've got more to give. Okay? I'll do it. Give me more insight. Give me more revelation of who you are. Can I have a greater understanding of your love for me? Can I have a greater picture of who you say I am? I'm chosen, you say? Not forsaken, God? What does that mean? He says very clearly, Just don't think that you're more than someone else. Hmm. A second observation about following God comes from this 
passage of scripture in verses 23 through 25 and Jesus looked around and he said disciples how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God and the disciples were amazed at his words but Jesus said in the beginning children how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God you see this is all about wealth but wealth isn't the problem it's dependency He's saying, I want you to be dependent upon me. If you're dependent upon yourself, you have no place in my kingdom. And he takes and he says, how hard is it for for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? That's impossible, and that's how impossible it is for somebody that has their priorities of dependency wrong to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I want to bring a picture to you. It's, It's kind of like saying, when pigs fly. This comment about the eye of a needle and a camel. There's two ways to look at that. There, the, when you would enter into a, a, a city, there was a opening, and it, they called that the eye of a needle, and it wasn't big enough, typically, for a camel to go through. Look at that picture. You could really think of a literal eye of a needle. Now, that camel could be translated two different ways. This has no real significance to the story other than it's just, I thought it was interesting. So I'm going to share you some of the interesting research that I got to do last night. Uh, the eye of the, uh, the, the row of, oh, that camel is translated two different ways. It's either camel or rope. Isn't that interesting? And I thought about bringing up a needle. I don't think you could have seen it real well. But envision myself with a needle and a rope. Have you ever threaded a needle with a thread? I have a tool for that because I can't, I'm not going to. Then you cut the thread again, and you you get it wet, and then you're like, you got to cut it again. And uh, yeah, there's tricks. Who cares? I don't have them, so I have a little thingy, and I stick it through, and then I it's got a bigger hole, and I thread it through that, and I just pull it through, and it's awesome. But a rope wouldn't go through that needle. Again, it's like saying when pigs fly. You see, the problem is that wealth, wealth leads oftentimes to the problem. It doesn't have to. Dependency. What he's saying is, I want you completely dependent upon me. I want you in a position where you look to me for your resource. You look to me for your answers. You look to me for your hope. You look to me. Hmm. So, if dependency becomes our challenge, that leads me to my third observation, and this is it. Very simple. God is our source. Now, I didn't intend to talk about this too much today, but I can't help but bring up the area of the tithe for just a moment. I know people are like, you do this all the time. And I don't ever bring up the tithe because we need money in this place. I bring up the tithe because you need God's abundant blessing upon your life, okay? The tithe is very much this. God said to Abraham back in the Old Testament, back before the law, bring me 10%, the first 10% of everything, That's the produce of the land. That's your uh, livestock. That's anything that comes in. I want not a 10% of some of it. I want the very first 10% and the very best at that. And so that is established before the law happens. And then there's a scenario where Jesus is before the scribes and the Pharisees. These are those religious people that think, hey, look at how good I am, but don't look deep. You know what I'm saying? Look Look at the life that I'm presenting out in public, but don't look at my internet search history. Don't, don't look in my uh, fridge in the garage. Uh, I'll quit stepping on my own feet for just a minute or whatever. Don't even read too far into that one. Uh, but, but, but anyway, and, and, and so 
They're out there and they're saying, look at all this stuff that I bring. Look at the giving that I've brought in. Just move on, Bo. Look at the giving that I've brought in. Look at how awesome I live my life in service for Jesus. Jesus comes out and says, you do well to tithe, but you should also give to the poor. You should also You do well. So we've got this establishment that it's good to give before the law and after the law. Jesus establishes this thing. But here's the deal. I can't afford to tithe. Most of you can't. I can't. But I can't afford not to. Because I'm in this position where I am on my knees before the good teacher. And I'm saying, you are my source. I trust you for my provision. And can I, can I say something very bold and strong? Yeah? When I say, God, I can't afford to tithe, therefore I'm not, what I'm ultimately saying is I don't need your help with my finances at all. I can do this on my own. Who wants to live that kind of a life? Don't need your input. No, I can do this. God's my source. And verse 26 says, And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God. Period. Isn't that an interesting sentence? But man it is impossible, but with God. With man it is impossible, but with God. He very clearly says, For all things are possible with. With. Look at that word for just a minute. With. With. Implies I'm not alone. If he's my source, he doesn't leave me to do things by myself. He doesn't leave me to to live this life alone. Now, there are times in which I may be sitting in a scenario where I feel lonely because people aren't helping me, but God is always there for me. And when I say He's my source, it's not just for financial means. It's for companionship. It's for future and hope. It's for so many things. He is my source. He's that place in which I plug into to get my charge, to get my ability, to get whatever I need to do what He's called me to do. But God, you don't understand. I'm worn out. I haven't slept in days. I can't help that person because I don't have what it takes. I I can't do this. I don't have the giftings. I, I don't speak really well. I get bound up. You want me to pray, but I go to pray out loud and I forget what I'm gonna say. You want me to do this and I don't have that. Listen, And if you're tapped into the source and all of a sudden he becomes the one that gifts you to do whatever it is that you've got to do in the moment. And all of a sudden you find yourself because of him living in his anointing and it's his anointing that empowers you to do everything that is beyond your capabilities. I'm going to talk next week about the anointing. It just happens to fit Kayla with this series all of a sudden, or uh, Alana with this series all of a sudden. Oh, I love how that happens. You can't wait. I can't wait to share with you what God's speaking to me about next week because he's like, oh, it's going to be so good. But God is our source. Are you with me? All right. Number four, observation. Number four, about following God. By the way, that top color is red. I don't know how that happened. But anyway, we must reevaluate what we live for. What do we live for? Many of us, before we had encounters with God, we lived for 
bank accounts, larger houses. We lived for education. We lived for status. We lived for nicer clothes. We lived for things. We lived for materialism. Maybe we lived for other people. There are those in this room that might have had a time in which we, and we might still, and there's nothing completely wrong with this, but we might live for our children. But he's calling you to reevaluate everything. You see, there was this man considered a rich ruler who was at the feet of Jesus. And he was asked to reevaluate everything. And in that moment, he made a choice. I can't. I can't give you everything. So he left. I'm going to give him credit for one thing. He didn't pussyfoot around. He didn't hem-haw. He didn't try and look good, but go home and balance his checkbook. He didn't Ananias and Sapphira it. You know that story? You know that story? Check this out. Here it is. This is a pretty rough deal. Acts. Oh, Jesus, where is it in Acts? I was thinking six, so I would have been close. Vanessa says it's in Acts chapter five, yes. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Sound familiar? Jesus told this man, do what? Sell everything. And and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought back only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. You hear that? brought only back a part of it. And he laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And while it remained unsold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard these things, he fell down and he breathed his last. Now, mind you, this is after Jesus has died on the cross, resurrected. He's living in a time that we live in today in the age of grace. Hmm. And a great fear came upon all who heard, and the young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to him, tell me whether you're, you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Hmm. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You see... They made a decision to look good. At least this man knew he couldn't. Now, unfortunately, in his couldn't, he did not get to live in the kingdom of God. Didn't get to live in this realm that he's calling us to live in. But he wants us very, very much to reevaluate what we live for. And ultimately, he's saying, live for me always have your best interest in mind. I've always got a good thing in mind for you. Live for me. Go all in. 
Go 100%. Don't hold back. And Peter began to say to him in verse 28, We have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brother, sister, mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive, listen to this word, a hundredfold now in this time. See, we are, the Bible talks about laying up treasures in heaven, but I believe wholeheartedly that in our ultimate sacrifice in serving him, if the rich young ruler had taken everything he had and he sold it, to the, sold it and gave to the poor, I am 100% convinced that within an instant, God would have restored to him, and then there would have been a hundredfold return into his arms of everything he sold. What does a hundredfold look like? What's a hundredfold of ten, math people? Is that a thousand? Yeah. It's a thousand. Can you imagine? This is a wealthy man. What if it was a million in those days? And he says, now, in this time, houses of brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land will, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. I want to look, if I can, for just a couple of more minutes at a very similar passage of Scripture, but completely a different story. And this is in James chapter 2. If you'll realize, we've got this story where Jesus says, follow the law. Remember, he brought up the Ten Commandments. He says, I've done those. And then he says, give to the poor. You you remember that, right? Listen to this in James chapter 2. And it says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in a chabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I'm so thankful we don't have a problem with that in this room. Listen, or do we? I I don't know. Maybe you have to evaluate yourself. Remember, that's part of those four steps. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But if you have dishonor, but if you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who will blaspheme the honorable name in which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, this is it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law. Understand that. The law. How? As transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point and has become accountable for all of it. For he has become accountable for all of it. For, if he, if, for he who says said... Do not commit adultery, but also do not murder. If you commit adultery, but do not murder, you become a transgressor of the whole law. If you break one, you break them all, is what he's saying here. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under, look at this, the law of liberty. Remember me opening up that it's the law that puts me in a position to be free? It's the law that puts me in a place of knowing what I can freely 
do, if I'm doing things within the confines of the law, there's no guilt associated with me. Now, I'm thankful that when I do mess those things up, we have an advocate. His name is Jesus. And Jesus took every penalty that was intended for me when I broke the law, and he paid it for me. But there is a place in liberty in which I sit that says I don't have to break the law anymore easily. But when I do, that doesn't keep me from the love of Christ. And that is the law of liberty. It's free and it's hope. Is it good to not murder? Absolutely. Is it good to not covet what your neighbor has? Absolutely. Is it good to not steal? Always. Is it good to not commit adultery? Well, that sure does make life at home a lot easier. Of course. Is it good not to think yourself as better than someone else in this room? And when it comes to the law and to grace, did you realize that grace takes the law a step further? Jesus said it very clearly. He said, the law says do not murder, but if you look at your brother with hate in your heart, you have committed murder. And if you look at someone else with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The law says if I kill you, I've committed murder. Grace says if I hate you, I've committed murder. The law says that if I do some inappropriate acts sexually with somebody that's not my wife or husband, I've committed adultery. Grace says that if I look at you and desire to do things like that with you, I've committed adultery. But the next step of grace also says that I will forgive you. I will give you hope. But then the next step beyond that says, in grace, you won't have to need forgiveness because you'll be able to live free from committing those acts. How powerful is that? And that is this law of liberty. But did you see in this encounter with James to who he's writing to that you've got this scenario that he says, think not better than someone else. Does that look familiar to our accountant Mark? And then he says, follow the law, all of it or none of it, but follow it. Because if you miss any of it, you miss it all, right? Does that sound familiar? But then he steps back and he says, but we will be judged under the law of liberty. And then verse 13 brings it all together. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. How are we shown mercy? Jesus Christ. It's saying, not to, it's not to those who show mercy, to those who were shown mercy. Jesus showed us mercy by stretching his arms out on a cross and dying for us. And verse 13 continues on. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The message translation says it this way. Talk and act like a person expecting to be judged, but rule by the rule that sets us free. Last week I mentioned in my message, in surrender there is liberty that is greater than freedom that comes to us. Ultimately what I'm trying to say, when we surrender to God's way, His way says that there's a lifestyle we have got to be subject to. There's freedom in that. This surrender comes from knowing we are God's to be who He called us to be 
and not as we called us to be. That's that exchange that I talked about earlier. The surrender comes from obedience more than sacrifice. And I'm going to close with this last scripture. Samuel says to Saul, Saul has been in this scenario where he's taken uh, the Amalekites, Amalek, and God says very clearly, kill them all. Everything. The livestock, the men, the women, the children. Jeez, this is a mean God. No. This is a God that was establishing a place for his people. Saul says, I'm gonna, I don't care. I'm going to spare one man. He spared a man. And Samuel comes to him and he says, Has the Lord the great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does he want sacrifices and does he delight in those over obeying his voice is what he's saying here? Behold, it is better than sacrifice. And to then listen to the fat of rams. In other words, obedience is better than sacrifice. You see, I opened this all up and I made it look like we had to sacrifice so much, didn't I? Give up everything for him. When really, when you give up everything, that seems like sacrifice, that's obedience. There's no sacrifice in obedience. There's freedom. There's no sacrifice in obedience. There's freedom. And in this message today, all I want for everyone in this room, those listening online and those that will listen to the podcast later, I want freedom for you. Freedom for you sets us free from so much that this world tries to heap upon us, but it moves us to a place of eternity. (laughs) Well, I sure hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. If it has blessed you, please click the subscribe, leave some feedback. Uh, Should you want to contribute towards this ministry and all that we're doing in northeastern Oklahoma, feel free to go to our website, wlmiami.com. That's W-L-M-I-A-M-I.com. Click on the Give tab, and it'll walk you through some steps right there. God bless you, and until next time.